plants withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of night. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's inerrant, infallible word, our Holy Bible, stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world. This worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the Bible Stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of Scripture for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here is our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Welcome to today's broadcast of the independent faith ministry of the Bible Stands. It's our real privilege to come into your home or to your car or to your place of business with this message from God's Word. Today, I'd like to begin a study that I call World War III in Prophecy. This is a study of the Old Testament prophecy that provides for us a word picture of the world's next great military conflict. In light of the recent acts of terrorism in the Mideast, it would seem that the stage is set today for the fulfillment of this prophecy. In the wake of the several-year-old peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, and in the light of the SALT II agreement between Russia and the United States, the world is once again saying, peace and safety. But in reply to this attitude of the world, the Apostle Paul has said, Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The Lord Jesus Christ once described to his disciples the nature of things that were to characterize the last days just before his second coming to earth. His words are found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. Let's read these words to open our study of World War III in prophecy. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. As we begin our study, the attention of the world is focused upon the Middle East. The center of attention is the Republic of Israel. In only recent years, through the mediating efforts of the President of the United States, a peace treaty has been negotiated between Israel and her ancient enemy, Egypt. To some observers, this treaty is a great step forward toward final world peace. If these ancient enemies can be caused to compromise their differences, then is it not possible that all the nations of the world will soon be able to compromise their differences also? Perhaps at last a utopian peace will come upon this battle-scarred earth. Why does Israel play such a significant part in world politics? According to man's logic, this little reclaimed nation should be of no consequence to world diplomacy. Israel's present population is scarcely four million people. That's only one-tenth of one percent of the population of the world. Israel has barely completed the 37th year of her existence as a sovereign nation in this modern world. Neither her population nor her age, as the modern world recognizes it, should entitle this nation to any position of great prominence. However, in today's political climate, no one can deny that Israel does play a leading role. In spite of the small population and the insignificant amount of territory held by this nation, Israel has progressed to a mature and significant position in the world family of nations. God's word has predicted that this was to happen in the latter days. Israel's dispersion during this age of God's grace was predicted by the prophet Hosea. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. That's in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The scripture is equally clear that this condition of dispersion for the chosen nation is not a permanent situation. The Apostle Paul's comment on this subject is found in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. In that time period that the prophets of Israel spoke of as the latter days, 
Israel is to be regathered from among the nations of the world. The basis of the Apostle Paul's assurance that the casting off of the chosen nation is not a permanent thing is found in the writing of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. That's in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. The regathering has begun. After almost 2,000 years of dispersion, a portion of the children of Israel are back into their homeland. The nation of Israel has been reestablished. That nation has not only maintained a precarious hold upon the original small area of land granted, but through various wars, that land area has been greatly expanded. The land of Israel has prospered. Through the efforts of a determined people, the little nation of Israel is becoming fabulously wealthy. The world does not want God's chosen nation to exist within the world family of nations. There is jealousy over the things Israel possesses. Satan, the prince of the powers of this world, hates that which is the earthly representative of God's sovereign choosing. The world is stirred up against this nation. It's the eternal decree of the God of Israel that has made Israel the focal point of present world politics. The decrees of God are being fulfilled. The world is on the brink of those great events which were prophesied in the oldest of the Hebrew scriptures. Everything points to the soon fulfillment of those prophetic events which God's word says are to come at the end of the age. In 1913, this planet saw the beginning of the first great world conflict. Most of the nations of the earth were involved in that great conflict which history knows as World War I. While the struggle was in progress, those who fought on the side of the Allies were saying that this was a war to end wars. The League of Nations, man's first attempt in several millennia to establish a system of world government, was to establish controls that would prevent future war. Yet only 25 years later, in 1938, another great world conflict broke out. This war, known as World War II, involved even more of the nations of the world in an intense struggle. World War II, according to the common motto of those years, was a war to make the world safe for democracy. This world struggle also was to be the last of man's wars. The United Nations, a system of world government that was to exercise even more rigid control over the affairs of the earth than the League of Nations, was to ascertain that no more wars would be fought. But since the institution of the United Nations in those late years of the 1940s, certain parts of the world have been in almost constant war. The best efforts of man have not been able to bring about world peace. As time moves onward, the hope of world peace appears to become less vivid even in the minds of the most optimistic humanists of our time period. During those closing days of his earthly ministry, before his rendezvous at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was asked some questions by his disciples. We read these questions in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world, or better, age? It was in answer to these questions that the Lord spoke the words which we read from Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. The Lord said that the time period preceding his return and the end of this age shall be marked with wars and rumors of wars. He did not predict the time of great world peace. There have been two great world wars since the beginning of this century. All prophetic signs indicate that the world is on the threshold of the Lord's return. Will other great world conflicts take place before the Lord finally stands upon the Mount of Olives when he comes to take charge of the kingdoms of the earth? Yes, the scriptures do point out that two more great world conflicts must take place. 
these two great world wars are still in the future. However, from the political climate of the world today, they don't seem to appear to be far in the future. We can designate these conflicts as World War III and World War IV, respectively. The two conflicts are to be fought in that order. Russia is going to invade Israel. Russia will not be alone in this invasion, but she will be the nucleus about whom a confederacy is to be formed for the purpose of destroying God's chosen people. This is the theme of several of the ancient prophets. World War III in prophecy is mentioned by Daniel, by Joel, by Isaiah, and by Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel who gives the greatest prominence to this prophecy. He devotes two long chapters of his book to a description of that invasion. It's in these two chapters, written by the prophet of the exile, that we find our detailed prophetic picture of World War III. Ezekiel wrote the words that are found in chapters 38 and 39 of his prophecy almost 2,600 years ago. As God's prophet, he was given a vision of events that are significant to the time period in which we live. Never has this picture been clearer than it is today in the light of current events. In the messages of this series, we will review Ezekiel's prophetic picture of the next great world conflict. We'll look at this picture in the light of the current world political situation. God has told us of things to come. We'll thank him and praise him for this picture as it's unveiled to us. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll begin our detailed study of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 as we continue these messages on World War III in prophecy on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study of World War III in prophecy. This is a study of the war of Gog and Magog as it's described by Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39 of his prophecy. Let's open today's study by reading Ezekiel chapter 38 verses 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back, and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the north quarters, and all of his bands, and many people with thee. As this section of the book opens, the Lord speaks to his servant Ezekiel. The prophet is instructed to deliver a message against a man and his kingdom. The man is called Gog, and his kingdom, Magog. The meanings of these two Hebrew names are uncertain. Gog has been said to mean extension, and Magog has been said to mean expansion. If these translations are correct, then the two terms might well point to the ruler of a vast territory greater perhaps than that over which anyone else holds authority. This in itself provides a very powerful clue as to the identity of the nation that's being addressed by the Lord through his prophet. From the standpoint of the size of the territory included, the most extensive and expansive single political nation in the world today is the nation Russia. Ezekiel does not leave us with just the probable meaning of these Hebrew names as our only source of identification of the leader of the nation to whom these words are addressed. The names mentioned in Ezekiel's opening statement themselves provide a great deal of information concerning the modern identification of the territories in view. Our English translation of verse 2 calls Gog the chief prince of Mesech and Tubal. The Hebrew word translated chief in this statement is the Hebrew word rosh. That word is the Hebrew word for head or chief. However, this word may be either a common noun or a proper noun. The construction of the Hebrew text gives strong indication that it should here be treated as a proper noun, that is, a proper name. 
the preferred reading of Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2 is, Son of man, set thy face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. The Hebrew word Rosh is believed to be the root of the modern name Russia. In order to obtain biblical identification for the names given here, we must turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10, 1 reads, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth are given in verse 2 as Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach. The names referred to in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2 are all sons of Japheth. This is significant because ethnologists tell us that the Japhethites migrated from Asia Minor to the north beyond the Caspian and the Black Seas. Instead of going to the south, as did the Shemites and the Hamites, the Japhethites moved to the north, and they became the people of the north. They went beyond the Caucasus Mountains and established their civilization beyond the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in the area of Rosh that we know today as modern Russia. Gog and Magog and Rosh and Meshach and Tubal do comprise the territory recognized as present-day Russia. The first century historian Josephus identifies Japheth's son Magog with the Scythian tribes which located in the region of the Black and the Caspian Seas. This is the area due north of Israel where the major cities of Russia are located today. The name Moscow is a modern form of the Hebrew word Meshach. The Russian province that we call Tobolsk is derived from the Hebrew word Tubal. There seems to be little reason to doubt that these ancient tribes were the progenitors of the peoples in both Europe and Asia who eventually were welded into the extensive and expansive modern-day Russian Empire. Ezekiel also provides some geographical information that points to the land of Russia. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 6, we read that the house of Togarma is in the north quarters. Then in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 15, those armies under Gog are said to come from thy place out of the north parts. And again in Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 2, the Lord says he will cause Gog's armies to come up from the north parts. The Hebrew expression translated north quarters in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 6 and as north parts in the other two references is the same in all three places. It should literally be translated the uttermost part of the north or the extreme north. The expression designates not just a direction but rather an exact geographical location. If one draws a line northward from any part of the land of Israel, the line soon extends into the territory of Russia, and Russia extends to beyond the Arctic Circle. There is no other territory that could possibly be designated as the uttermost part of the earth. Russia is positively identified. God's message declares his enmity against this godless nation. I am against thee, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. God is about to work a mighty work through this enemy of himself and of his people. But even though this great nation is about to be used as an object lesson for all the world, God declares that he stands against that extensive and expansive kingdom of Satan. The scene that God describes is a scene of preparation for military conquest. Gog is about to be brought to invade the little land of Israel. God is to use the evil and greed that is a part of the nature of this materialistic empire to bring about his own purposes. Verse 4 declares that God will never lose control of the situation. And I will turn thee back, or turn thee around, and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. The picture is that of a great beast that is to be controlled by an external intelligence. The Lord God says, I will turn thee around. God will dictate the direction of the war effort. I will put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. Just as one would place a bit in the mouth of a horse that he intends to control, God will put hooks into the jaws of Gog standing in front of the nation Magog. Thus God will assume positive control over the movement of this war machine. It's a mighty war machine that's in view. God says that he will drive forth all thine army, horses and horsemen, 
all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. The army is fully equipped. There's an infantry and there's a cavalry. A great multitude of horses and horsemen are to take place in this invasion. The nation Russia is not to be alone in this great movement against God's chosen nation. Five allied nations are mentioned by name. In addition to these specific allies, God tells this invading nation that they are also to have many people with thee. Who are these allied nations who are mentioned specifically by name? They're listed in verses 5 and 6. There's Persia and Ethiopia and Libya, Gomer and Togarma and all his bands. We have no trouble in giving modern identity to Persia because that name was continued until after the turn of the century for that specific land south and east of Palestine. Persia is modern-day Iran. Several years ago, Iran was considered to be a firm ally of the Western powers. Yet in a short span of only a few months, the Shah was disposed from the throne and a new democratic Muslim state had been put, set up in that ancient land. This state has shown both enmity to the Western allies and a growing friendship for the Soviet powers. The prophecy that Persia would be allied with Russia in World War III seemed remote only a few years ago. Yet today, such an alliance is not only possible, but it seems probable. The next names listed are Ethiopia and Libya. These two names are used in two distinctly different senses in the Old Testament. There were nations in Africa known as Ethiopia and Libya. Their names continue to the present. But there were also states adjacent to Persia that were known as Ethiopia and Libya. In the book of Exodus, we're told that when Moses had to flee from Egypt because he had slain an Egyptian, he went out into the wilderness, and there he married an Ethiopian. He did not go south into African Ethiopia, but rather into that Ethiopia in the Arabian Peninsula. There he married an Ethiopian who was a Shemite. Although Ezekiel's prophecy could be speaking of the African Ethiopia and Libya, it's more likely that he's speaking of the ancient Arab states. In the political climate of today, those Arab nations to the east and south of Israel are most definitely oriented with the Russian communist bloc. The names of Gomer and Togarma are also listed. Gomer is named as the first son of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 2. Gomer is associated with the Germanic peoples, and this name would pertain to the Iron Curtain countries of Eastern Europe, particularly East Germany. Togarma has been associated with the Turkish Peninsula and with the provinces of southern Russia. It's likely that Togarma can be identified with modern Turkey. God's words go on to say that there will be many people with thee. There will be allies other than those who are mentioned by name. Notice one curious thing about this prophecy. At least this was a curious thing up until the fairly recent negotiations between Israel and Egypt. Egypt is not mentioned among the antagonists. Again, as recently as one year ago, Egypt was considered firmly in the camp of Israel's enemies. Just as Persia, Iran, has made a recent move from one camp to the other, so has the nation Egypt. In our day, there seems to be a very definite alignment toward the exact confederacy that's described here in these words that God gave through Ezekiel almost 2,600 years ago. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of World War III and prophecy on the next broadcast. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of Ezekiel's prophecy of the war of Gog and Magog as it's found in chapters 38 and 39 of his book. I call this study World War III in Prophecy. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 7 through 9. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee.
There was biting irony in Ezekiel's words as he continued to direct God's message to Gog. Gog was instructed to be fully prepared for the coming encounter. He was to see to it that all was in readiness as far as his confederates were concerned. He was to be a guard, literally their leader and commander, to them all. Gog can never complain that the Lord God gave him inadequate time for the preparation. The God of heaven is to bring Russia and her confederates into Palestine because he's going to use these allied armies as the greatest object lesson this world has ever seen. But the invasion is not to occur in the immediate future from Ezekiel's standpoint. Centuries, even millennia, will be allowed to pass before God brings about this encounter which is to demonstrate his power to protect the remnant of his chosen people. Verse 8 provides an abundance of important details. First, God's notation of time indicates that the attack of the enemy will not take place for a long time. The actual events of the prophecy were not to be expected in the lifetime of Ezekiel or of Ezekiel's contemporaries. Two notations of time are made. After many days thou shalt be visited. These words specify that a long period of time is to intervene between the giving of the prophecy and the fulfillment of it. Ezekiel, who was a contemporary with the prophet Daniel, wrote these words in the 6th century B.C. During the same time period, Daniel was given prophecies concerning the earthly history of God's chosen people. Daniel's prophecies leave a great time parentheses between the first coming of Messiah and that time period of great testing that is to just precede the second coming of Messiah, that time period which Scripture designates as the 70th week of Daniel. Ezekiel's words, after many days, indicate that the time parentheses of the church age is not omitted in this prediction. A continuous time interval that will stretch on into centuries and millennia is in view. The prophesied events that are to occur after many days are to constitute a visitation from the Lord. The Hebrew word used by Ezekiel is the usual one for a visitation, either in blessing or in punishment. It refers to a time when God's power is to be exercised upon the one who is to receive the visitation. God has emphasized that he and he alone will bring about the military invasion for which Gog is to be prepared. The second time designation is contained in the next clause of verse 8. The time of occurrence of World War III is distinctly stated as being in the latter years. The expression is equivalent in meaning to the latter days of verse 16. Both of these expressions designate a specific time period, not just an interval of time. This is of great significance in understanding the predicted time of this invasion. The latter years and the latter days refer to the time period of God's dealings with his chosen people Israel near the end of this age and the beginning of the next age, a time that Daniel has designated as the 70th week. It is after many days that the great northern confederation will be formed. It's in the latter years after Israel returns to the land, after the church has been removed from the earth, during the tribulation, that the invasion will take place. Ezekiel has written that the northern invaders will come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Israel's dispersion among the nations was brought about by military weapons, that is, by the sword. When the invasion comes upon the land of Israel, God's people will have been restored from the effects of the sword, and the sword is representative of all the weapons of the enemy. This can only designate a people who have been restored to the land after a long exile among the nations of the world. Restoration from the dispersion of Hosea chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5 will have taken place. This reinforces the declaration that the invasion will occur during the latter days, that is, during the tribulation. The people of Israel will have been regathered out of many peoples, that is, out of their dispersion among the Gentile nations of the world. That country that has been so long a continual waste 
will become prosperous because of its productive orchards, vineyards, and dairy farms, its chemical plants on the shores of the Dead Sea, and its great manufacturing concerns, which will be developed there through Jewish ingenuity. The population of this prosperous nation will have been gathered out of many nations. The expressions used in the latter part of verse 8 points to a nation of expanded territory, a national boundary that encompasses more land than is presently occupied by this little reborn nation. The nation extends to the mountains of Israel, which would seem to include some of that which is now Lebanon. This mountainous region has never in all history been fully occupied by Israel. This accounts for the expression, which have been always waste. The expanded boundaries encompass land that has been recaptured from various Middle Eastern nations. Ezekiel says that this land is brought forth out of the nations. And they shall dwell safely, all of them. This expression provides very strong indication of the time setting of World War III. When the Russian invasion comes, all the people of Israel will be dwelling safety. This is an unusual statement, for there are not too many times when Israel is dwelling safely in God's prophetic program. Israel is not dwelling safely today. Israel is an armed camp, living under a very uncertain truce with enemies that surround them. These enemies would gladly destroy every Israelite if only they could. They have not succeeded in doing so because of Israel's ability and willingness and readiness to fight. Under this situation, the Israelites are not dwelling safety, all of them. The prophecies of Scripture seem to indicate that there is one future time when Israel will be dwelling safely. That period occurs during the first three and one-half years of Daniel's 70th week. The leader of that nation will have signed the covenant of hell with the head of the revived Roman Empire. That one will have extended his military protection to Israel. Israel will have been able to relax her military stance. The nation will have confidence in the military power of the Western Coalition of Nations, and through this confidence they will dwell safely. This would appear to be the time period that is pinpointed for the Russian invasion of the nation Israel. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Russia and her communist bloc allies will sit in the north country as a military opponent of the man of sin. Their leader, Gog, will observe the richness of the resources of that nation of God's people who are under the military protection of the Western Coalition of Nations. The richness of the resources, especially the military resources of this little nation, will stir up the jealousy and the greed of Gog and his confederates. This is the motivating influence that God will use as his hooks in the jaws of this enemy confederacy. Gog will decide to challenge the military power of the Western nations. He and his confederates shall come down like a great cloud to cover the land, determined to subject it to their own authority. And they will soon find with whom it is that they have to deal. The words of verse 9 strongly suggest that the military assault of Israel will begin with an air invasion. Thou shalt ascend, that is, climb upward, and come like a storm, Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. This would seem to refer to military action in the atmospheric heaven, that is, to an air attack. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Russia and her allies will not be bluffing. They fully intend to settle the Jewish question forever. However, there is no possibility that their efforts will meet with success. God has previously prophesied Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the prince of Roish, Meshach, and Tubal. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of Ezekiel's prediction of World War III in prophecy on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stand. Let's continue our study of World War III in prophecy as we read verses 10 through 13 of Ezekiel chapter 38. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. 
and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods, that dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? The message of the Lord God to Gog, that future political leader of the nation Russia, is continued in these verses. By these words, penned in the 6th century B.C. by the prophet Ezekiel, God demonstrates his omniscience. God has pre-recorded the very thoughts of the mind of that future Russian prince, the very words that this man will speak as he comes to his decision to initiate World War III have been set down by the prophet. And this writing came at least 2,600 years before the actual event. The words at the same time refer back to verse 8. From the time that this message was given to the time of the fulfillment, there would be an interval of many days. After that period, in a time interval designated as the latter years, Gog was to initiate his war against God's people. The latter years refer to the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel. This final evil decision and the war that's to result from it will come during the time of the tribulation. Verse 9 appears to predict that the full-scale land invasion to be launched by Gog and his allies will be preceded by an initial airstrike. The words that follow seem to indicate that the success of the airstrike, especially since there appears to be no retaliation from the leader of the Western Coalition of Nations who has covenanted to protect Israel, is the motivation behind Gog's decision for the invasion. That decision is the evil thought of verse 10. That evil thought is recorded as spoken words in the next two verses. It is Gog himself that voices the motivation of the northern confederacy by these words which God foreknew in the time of Ezekiel. In verse 11, Gog designates both the land and the people that he expects to subdue in his declaration of a war of aggression. I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates. A most important aspect of this entire prophecy is contained in these words. The prophesied words of Gog tell us that the people of Israel will be dwelling securely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates. This description of the land of Israel can only apply to modern times. In all times of past history, when Israel has occupied the land, it was customary to build a wall around any prosperous city. When one visits the Bible lands and view, views the ruins of those ancient cities, he's impressed that all of the cities were surrounded by walls, or as a minimum, any city would have available a fortress with a wall around it. The fortress was available as a place where the people of the city could retire under conditions of impending attack. In short, it was customary in ancient times to build walls about cities. In this modern day, since the reestablishment of the nation Israel, the ancient custom has been discontinued. There's an obvious reason for this. A wall is no protection against the weapons of modern warfare. How did Ezekiel, writing 2,600 years ago, know that at some future time the military situation would be such that cities would be built without walls? The answer is simple. Although Ezekiel penned the words that we have in this prophecy, the words were not his own. The Spirit of God has given genuine prophecy. This prophecy actually records the words of an evil political leader who is to live more than 26 centuries in the future. The scene that these words describe is a modern situation. The details of verse 11 point to Israel's situation as it is today. 
Once again, in verse 11, we're told that the people of Israel are at rest and that they dwell safely. This description cannot apply to Israel as that nation stands today. Israel is not at rest and she is not dwelling safely. Israel is literally an armed camp with enemies standing all about her. It's only her military alertness that has kept this little nation free from military destruction since the time of her birth in 1948. Israel will be at rest and dwelling safely during the early part of the 70th week of Daniel. Her, her covenant with the false messiah, the political leader of the Western Coalition of Nations, the revived Roman Empire, will have been signed. Israel will depend upon the military might of that Western Empire for her protection. She will have relaxed her own military posture, and she will be dwelling securely. That land of unwalled villages will appear to be an easy target for Gog's aggression. Gog's attack is to be launched upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. This is quite an interesting phrase that Ezekiel has used to define the area of the world against which this attack is to be launched. The word translated midst in the last clause of verse 12 literally means navel. The word translated land is often translated in scripture as earth. The clause actually speaks of those that dwell in the navel of the earth. The land of Israel is in the very center of the earth as far as God's view is concerned. The origin of God's earthly coordinate system is at the temple site in Jerusalem. Gog will have little interest in public opinion from the nations of the world. He will believe that his military might will overcome any resistance that the rest of the world might offer. However, he will stir up a protest against his action issued by a group of people who consider themselves friends of Israel. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof, will be aroused and alarmed by Gog's impending military action. Who are Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof? The names Sheba and Dedan first appear in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 7. Here we find that these men were the sons of Ramah, who was a son of Cush, who was a son of Ham. These men settled in the Arab lands, and the names doubtlessly refer to Arab nations. The exact identification of these nations cannot be made with certainty. This verse of scripture does indicate that Israel will have some friends among the Arab nations during the early days of the tribulation. Tarshish is generally identified with the lands of the far west of Europe, including perhaps a part of Spain, but very definitely Great Britain. The word seems to be used to refer to nations in the vicinity and beyond the Strait of Gibraltar. It's very likely that a land to the far west of the Mediterranean Sea, a land that was unknown in Ezekiel's day, may be included in this expression. This could be a land on the American continents. It could be the United States of America. Ezekiel's prophecy continues and includes all the young lions thereof, with this collection of three actual names that designate the impotent protesters against Gog's movement. The lion in scripture is the symbol of a kingdom. The young lions would symbolize relatively recent political kingdoms with their rulers. Since the newly formed kingdoms, from the viewpoint of biblical prophecy, are situated in the western lands, such as Iceland and the Americas, it would seem that Ezekiel is calling attention to the fact that his expression Tarshish includes not only the older kingdoms near the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, but also those new kingdoms to the far west. It's strongly probable that the political leader of the United States of America is included among the young lions of Tarshish. In keeping with the Cold War political situation as it exists today, the nations who are nominally friends of Israel issue their protest. Art thou come to take a spoil? Of course, Gog has moved toward Israel for the very purpose of spoiling that wealthy reclaimed nation. Hast thou gathered thy company to take a, per a prey? Just think how Gog will laugh at this one. Are you mobilizing your military forces to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? 
When he's able to recover control from his fit of laughter, Gog will reassure these protesters, of course not. Gog's motivation for mobilizing the northern confederacy of Israel's enemies is declared by his own words. God's hooks in his jaws are his greed. He has been turned around. His vast army moves toward Israel to take a spoil, to take a prey. Greed is Gog's motivation. However, God is in control. He has brought about the military situation of World War III for an entirely different purpose from that which motivates Gog. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of World War III in prophecy on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let's continue with our study of World War III in prophecy by reading the passage found in Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, in that day, when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog before their eyes. The message to Gog recorded in these verses of Scripture is God's message, not Ezekiel's. God has emphasized this by repeating his personal address to Gog at several significant points within the extended message. In verse 14, the Lord addressed himself once again to that leader of the hostile confederacy who had already made plans for the plundering of restored Israel in their own land. Therefore, that is, because Gog has already made his plans for invading the land of Israel, therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? Throughout this prophecy, there is repeated emphasis upon the time element. Gog's plans for invasion are to come in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely. That time is the time when Israel is dwelling with a false sense of security under the unbroken covenant with the Antichrist. That time is the first half of Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period. The restored nation will feel that she has nothing to fear from former enemies because of the great military might of her sworn protector. This is only an imagined security because the real value of the covenant as a protecting shield for this little nation has not yet been tested. It's with emphasis upon the imagined security of the nation that God has asked Gog the ironic question, Shalt thou not know it? The Lord knew full well that Gog will have already acquainted himself with the fact of Israel's defensive situation in order to be sure of the success of his attack. In his written word, the Lord has revealed his knowledge of every hidden purpose and motivation. Gog has already tested the validity of Israel's covenant. He has launched a probing air attack against Israel, and there has been no retaliation as a result of this test maneuver. Now he's prepared for a full-scale invasion. For the second time, God has revealed the area of origin of this great invasion of World War III. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the uttermost parts, the furthest reaches of the north. This geographical description can only designate territory controlled by the nation Russia. The invasion of Israel is to be accomplished by a massive land army moving from that point of origin in the extreme north toward the land that God has given to Israel. The political prince of the nation, Russia, Gog himself, is to lead that invading army. 
God's words to Gog in verse 15 provide a vivid description of this massive military force. The invading army consists of thou, that is, Gog, and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Emphasis is placed on the fact that a large part of the army consists of cavalry. God's description applies both to the Russian army and her allies as he says, all of them riding upon horses. Many have been caused to wonder if this prophesied invasion is to actually take place in modern times because of the emphasis placed upon soldiers mounted on horseback. It has seemed to them that the horse is an obsolete weapon of war and that Ezekiel must be describing an invasion that took place in the days when horses were used in a prominent way for military maneuvers. It is a known fact that in this modern day, Russia has the largest and finest cavalry ever assembled and trained for military purposes. Because of the nature of the terrain and of the meteorological conditions within those vast northern regions over which Russia has expanded, she has recognized the value of mounted horse soldiers for military operations there. Consequently, she has breeded and trained a vast number of military horses, and she has trained cavalry soldiers to mount them. Today, Russia has the power to assemble just such an army as is described in God's message. The oil situation in the world today points toward another very political or very practical reason why this great invasion would be carried out primarily by Russian cavalry. Tanks, armored vehicles, and airplanes require vast amounts of petroleum products for their operation. An acute shortage of oil would certainly cause military commanders to plan their maneuvers with vehicles that do not require oil products. The horse has always been, and still is, just such a vehicle. It is possible that Ezekiel may have used the word horses to describe modern mechanized vehicles of war. He would have had no adequate vocabulary to describe modern war machines. Therefore, the horses of verse 15 could include both living horses and modern mechanized vehicles. The large amount of weapon debris mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 9 tends to lend support to the idea that mechanized vehicles are included among the horses of Gog's great army. The invading force is described as a great company and a mighty army. The expression, a great company, specifies that the invading army will include a great multitude of soldiers. The human personnel of the army will form a great company, but it's the vast number of weapons of war and equipment, along with the ability to use these weapons and equipment, that form a mighty army. The prophecy emphasizes that this invading force will be one of the greatest military machines that the earth has ever known. All of this mighty force is to be directed toward the defeat of God's chosen people Israel. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. The invading army will move right to the very border of the land of Israel without encountering any military resistance from the nations that voiced the feeble protest of verse 13. Neither will there have been any military resistance from the leader of the Western Coalition of Nations who has covenanted to protect Israel. Again, God uses the description as a cloud to cover the land. This description most likely has a double meaning. A cloud covering the land would normally direct attention to the military action of airborne vehicles in the airspace above the battleground. No doubt, Gog will have air support for his massive land army. However, the land army itself can also be described as a cloud covering the land. In the prophecy of Joel, the idea of a cloud is associated with the swarms of locusts that came as a plague upon the land. The locust plague came in waves, and the various waves consisted of both the flying and the crawling forms of the insects. This is probably the picture intended here. The cloud that covers the land consists of the massive land army along with its airborne support. The time of this invasion is repeated in verse 16. It shall be in the latter days. This expression applies to Daniel's 70th week and to the tribulation. Gog will invade Israel during the days of the seven-year tribulation period. 
and I will bring thee against my land. The presentation of the scripture is always given to show that God is the sovereign ruler and the overruler of all the earth. Therefore, it's true that God will bring the enemy against his land. He actually will bring these nations to the doom which they themselves will have prepared by the evil within their own wicked hearts. God's purpose for the prophesied invasion is brought out in the latter part of verse 16. God is to make Gog and his forces an object lesson for the heathen nations of the world. I will bring thee against my land that the heathen, the Gentiles, may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. God is once again dealing with his chosen nation as he dealt with them in Old Testament times. He's their champion and he's their strength. He will demonstrate to all the nations of the world that Israel is the apple of his eye and the subject of his protection. Therefore, he will bring the vast armies of Gog to the very borders of Israel, and he will destroy these armies by supernatural means. There can be no reasonable doubt within the hearts of all those in the earth that God does exist and that he does protect his people. When God states that he will be sanctified in Gog, the thought is not that this puffed-up earthly ruler will in any way add to the character or the attributes of God. The word sanctified means set apart. The object lesson of Gog's defeat is to be used to set apart the true and living God from the other gods that heathen men worship. The God of forces, that is the God of materialism, is worshipped in the nation Russia. That God is also worshipped in many other heathen nations of the world. In the Lord's dealing with Gog, the God of all the universe will be recognized as holy. Just as circumstances reveal to all the wickedness and ungodliness of men, so circumstances also re reveal the blessedness and holiness of God. The attributes of God are to be recognized by the unsaved of the world through his actions against Gog's mighty military force. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of World War III in prophecy on the next broadcast. Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or into your car or into your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're continuing with our study of World War III in prophecy. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 17 through 23. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him, and upon his bands, and upon the many people that are with him, and overflowing rain, and great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself, and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Once again, God has identified himself as the source of this message. Thus saith the Lord God. The continuing words of this message were still directed to Gog, the Russian prince and military commander. God's message now took the form of a question. Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? God's question is calculated to bring to the reader's attention the fact that a very long time interval is to intervene between the writing of the message and the fulfillment of it. The question was directed to Gog 
in the context of the time setting of the far future day of the fulfillment. The prince, Gog, had not yet been born in the day that the Lord God spoke these words. Many centuries, even millennia, are to go by before this message will come to the attention of that individual to whom it is directed. The great gap of time that's to intervene between the writing of the message and the application of it is emphasized by the content of this question. Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel? That is, are you who lives near the end of that age of man, over two and one-half millennia after my words were written, really the one who was spoken of in those scriptures penned by the prophets of Israel? Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days, in those days when the prophets of Israel lived and wrote, many years, many years after the actual writing that are to transpire before God's invasion, that I would bring thee against them? The word prophets in verse 17 is plural. Although the primary writing that God has in mind is this very prophecy written by Ezekiel, the plural designation of prophets does indicate that other scriptural writings are in view also. It is true that this end-time invasion was predicted by other Old Testament prophets. Daniel is speaking of this same invasion in chapter 11 and verse 40 of his prophecy. Daniel designates Gog as the king of the north. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, and with horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. Daniel's statement also indicates that the invasion of the king of the north will involve an air attack, like a whirlwind, mechanized war vehicles along with the horse-mounted cavalry, with chariots and with horsemen, as well as a naval strike with many ships. The he of the last clause refers to the leader of the Western Coalition of Nations. God is speaking of this world ruler's action which is to be initiated after Gog has been destroyed. The prophet Joel has described this conflict with the king of the north in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 27 of his book. This prophecy opens with the words, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. The fact that Joel is truly speaking a prophecy against the northern confederacy is brought out in verse 20. But I will remove far off from you the northern army. God's purpose for the conflict described by Joel is brought out in verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Joel's statement of the purpose of this conflict is exactly the same as that of Ezekiel. Gog and his northern confederacy is to be made the greatest object lesson that the world has ever known. The prophet Isaiah also seems to be speaking of the leader of the northern confederacy and of his end-time movement against Israel when he writes of the king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 12. This man is mentioned as the Assyrian in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 31 through 33, and in Isaiah chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Both of these passages foretell the great object lesson that God will give to the earth through his personal defeat of the great northern confederacy. Yes, the Russian prince who is to come on the world scene in the days preceding and during Daniel's 70th week is the one of whom God has said, I have spoken in old time by my serpents, the prophets of Israel. When Gog and his end time associates read this question penned so many years ago by Ezekiel, they can reach the definite conclusion, yes, he is the one. As Gog's greed pulls him into the territory of the nation Israel, Jehovah God, the champion of his chosen people Israel, will stand in his way. And it shall come to pass at the, the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Jehovah himself will deal with this invading army. 
He will speak in his indignation, and the nations of the earth shall learn that he is concerned about the deliverance of his chosen people. God's reaction to the audacity and insubordination of Gog and his great army is stated in bold terms and with vivid imagery. The picture is of the breath which an angered man inhales and exhales through his nose. God's patience has been exhausted with this attempt of Israel's enemies to annihilate her. The Lord himself is Israel's champion. He will undertake the destruction of Israel's enemies. He will use no secondary agent. This is to be a final and irrecoverable judgment. God will control both natural and supernatural mechanisms of destruction as he wages his decisive war against the Northern Confederacy. It's interesting to note the sequential order of the mechanisms that God will use against the invading Northern forces as these mechanisms are mentioned in the final verses of Ezekiel chapter 38. First will come earthquake, then anarchy, then pestilence, and finally natural disasters. God's violent shaking of the earth will affect every area of nature, both animate and inanimate, as described in verses 19 and 20. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. All the earth will be aware of the source of the power that's being brought forth for the destruction of Gog and his armies. God's higher creation, man, will be thrown into confusion and civil strife as a result of the supernatural manifestation of God's power. And I will call for a sword against him, against Gog, throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God, Every man's sword shall be against his brother. The nations of the world, which have previously not been willing to oppose Gog and his invasion, will now be called upon to enter active military conflict with the invading forces. Mountains in Scripture represent political nations. The Lord God has said that he will now call for such military force. But supernatural panic will have come upon man, and lack of reason and judgment will be taken away. There will be rebellion within the invading armies, and soldiers of the same uniform will fight one another. Anarchy has come as a part of God's great object lesson for the world. It's not coincidence that the, sequ the sequential series of judgments brought by God upon the world as a reaction against this invasion of the Northern Confederacy precisely match the sequential order of judgments mentioned in the Lord's Olivet Discourse. The sequence of events also precisely matches the sequence of the first four seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6. First, God will bring a mighty earthquake that will wreak havoc upon the enemies of Israel, both filling the hearts of their followers with fear and dread, as well as destroying many of them. This will be followed by anarchy. Then pestilence will break out among the hosts led by Gog. Great supernatural calamities, hailstones, fire, and brimstone falling from the skies will literally annihilate the overconfident armies led by the prince of Magog. God does not take delight in judgment. He himself states fully why he must visit man in his wrath. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. By the supernatural manifestations of God's power, rebellious man will come to realize the existence, the nature, and the power of the great God who is sovereign of the universe. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of World War III in prophecy on the next broadcast.